0: Hey. So back in 1840, First Baptist Church Houston was one of the largest, it was one of the most respected churches in the country. They wanted to be a progressive church, you know, kind of cutting edge, so they made a purchase back in 1840 that they were super excited about. Now, The problem was there were some people in the congregation that were part of their church family that weren't very excited about this purchase at all. In fact, there was a group of people in the church that called this purchase the Devil's Instrument. The Devil's Instrument. Anybody want to guess what it was that First Baptist Church purchased in 1840 that people called the devil's instrument it's okay put it out there Ray. what do you got man you're dead on an organ is the correct answer no prizes Ray but good job man yes yeah, so now the story gets more interesting so they purchased this organ and for the first two Sundays I mean, it's amazing. Uh, By by the second Sunday, dozens and dozens of new families had begun to show up at this church, inspired in part by, you know, the the new worship, the, the purchase of this organ, right? But then on the third Sunday, when everyone showed up for worship, the organ was just gone. I mean, it completely disappeared. No one knew what had happened to it. No one could figure out what had happened to this organ. And so they searched and they inquired about this organ for years. Now, fast forward to 1880. The bayou, there was a bayou just outside of Houston that's being drained to make room because the city's growing so rapidly. So they're draining this bayou. And as the water begins to recede, they notice what looks like a bunch of pipes and a huge uh, piano that is starting to show more and more as the surface of the water is being drained. And upon closer inspection, they figured out they found a plaque on this organ that said First Baptist Church Houston Texas so the mystery of what had happened to this organ had been solved after 40 years now think about this for 40 years that organ had been missing but now they knew someone had broken one of the Ten Commandments stolen that organ from a church right and thrown it into uh, the bayou even though it was bringing new families to the church people were embracing Jesus now the question is why why would someone do that now there are probably a number of answers to that question but I'm going to tell you one of them one of the reasons that they did that is because change is really really hard Change is really, really hard. And this is why many churches never, ever change, right? They just don't want the hassle. It's just too hard to change, right? Now, I'd like to submit to you this morning, I mean, we all know, right? It's, it's the early 2000s now. We know that when First Baptist Church bought an organ in 1840, we would never call that organ the devil's instrument, right? I mean, we know better. We know that an organ is not the devil's instrument, but I'd like to submit to you that there is a devil's instrument, and I'm even going to tell you what it is. It's not an organ. The devil's instrument is a church that is focused on itself that is the devil's instrument it is a church that lives for itself and produces a bunch of consumers and a consumer is someone who just essentially says this they say what other all consumers say right hey what's in it for me What's the benefit in this situation for me? How are you going to serve me? How are you going to help me? How are you going to help my family? How are you going to serve them, right? Now listen, you need to know that we are in a season of change, at Shelbyville Community Church, we are in a season where God is asking us very, very clearly not to focus on ourselves, but instead to live beyond ourselves, to offer the very best of our time, our talents, and our treasures, and then take those things and invest them in our community. Right? We believe, we believe very much that we are not called to be a church of consumers where we just all sit around and ask the question, what's in it for me or what have you done for me lately, but instead that we are called to make our community a better place to live. You've heard us talk for several months now about the property at 14 West Broadway, right? Many of you know this. Uh, We've been in discussions for many, many months with First Baptist Church here in our community about receiving that building as a gift from them. And that looks imminent. It looks like that is probably going to happen. But we want you to understand very clearly that this is not about a building for us. This is about a vision. This is about what God is asking us to do and what God is asking you to do. So uh, I want to talk about that vision. Now a couple of weeks ago we talked about our mission statement. We're in the middle of a series called This Is Us. We talked about the mission. Now you know a church's mission doesn't ever change, right? And we said uh, our mission is uh, to grow radical disciples who love and lead like Jesus. That's our mission. But a mission is a little different than a vision because what a vision is, is a vision says, okay, what is it? Like all churches have that mission, right? Or at least they should. But what is it that makes SCC unique? What is God uniquely calling us to do for and in our community, the community of Shelbyville, Indiana? And we believe uh, that we have an answer to that question. So our vision is this. We want to be a disciple-making church that offers hope and healing to our community. I'm going to repeat that again. We want to be a disciple-making church that offers hope and healing to our community. In other words, what we're saying is this. We want to be a church that makes our town a better place to live. I mean concretely. I mean tangibly. I mean really. Because Jesus, when He came, He came concretely. He came tangibly. Really. And so we want to be a church that that are His hands, His feet, because when a church begins to exist for itself, it is game over. The devil is one. Because the devil's instrument in a local church, we all know, is not an organ. It's complacency and comfort. It's when Christians line up, lean back, cross their arms, and ask the question what's in it for me? Because when a church begins to ask that question, they're asking the the same question that everybody else in their culture is asking. The church doesn't look any different when we ask that question, right? And Jesus tells us very clearly that we in this room are meant for better than that. We're meant for more than that. We're meant to experience more than just that. And so in, uh, in the book of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus just makes uh, an amazing statement. And I want to read through that together and spend most of the rest of the morning unpacking this and looking at what some of the implications of this observation that Jesus made about you and about me. All right? So here's what he said. He said, One day, he was looking at a group of his disciples, his students, people like you and me. Some of them had recently said yes to him. Others had been following him a little longer. And he looked at this group of people, and it was kind of a ragtag group of people. They weren't super accomplished or super educated or really super anything. And here's what Jesus said to them. You are the salt of the earth. Now, you and I hear that phrase, and it kind of bounces off. It has no meaning, because when we think salt, we think processed salt. We think table salt. But that is not what they thought of when they heard this statement at all. And we're going to let you know what they thought uh, of this statement in a minute. But Jesus goes on. Not only does he make this observation, you're the salt of the earth. Then he says, but If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And what's meant to be understood as the answer to this question is, well, once salt loses its saltiness, there's really nothing that you can do. There's no hope. I mean, it's really impossible for salt to regain its saltiness. Now, I want to be very clear that when Jesus uses that word here, what he's talking about, the way that churches lose their saltiness is they become comfort comfortable and they become complacent and so what Jesus is saying is that once a church crosses the line and they are just asking the question what's in it for me that it is almost impossible for that church to regain its saltiness that there's a line you almost can't cross. And that that line gets crossed when churches just get comfortable, when they just get complacent, when they refuse to change and just kind of stick with the status quo. It's game over. And that is the devil's instrument, right? That's what the devil's instrument is. So that's one way that a church can lose its saltiness is just through comfort and complacency. But there's another way that Jesus talks about here in Mark 9. Again, he's talking about salt. Listen to how he says it this time. Salt is good. Then he asks the same question. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And again, the understood answer is, well, you can't. It's beyond hope, right? And then Jesus says this, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another now this is in my mind an unfortunate translation So uh, I think that uh, this should be stated entirely differently and it changes the whole meaning of what Jesus says if you read it this way. What many of you don't know is that the, the original language that the New Testament was written in is the language of Greek and a Greek preposition is very fluid and I'm almost done with my academic lecture. Okay, so hang with me, I promise it'll be worth it. So I don't think that the preposition that's been translated here uh, that's been translated here and is accurate. I think the accurate reading of this verse should be said this way: "Have salt in yourselves by, by being at peace with one another." Now, this is a preview. This is a preview of something Jesus is going to do when he brings his new covenant, his new agreement with human beings in John 13. Because at that time, after... Jesus makes this brand new agreement with human beings, an agreement that has never been made between people and God before. Jesus makes this agreement, and then he looks at his followers, people like you and me, and these words were written and preserved for us as well. And he said, a new command I give you, love one another. But listen, don't love one another the way you want to be loved you love one another the way that I have loved you. You love, in other words, you love people by giving yourself away for them. That's how I'm calling you to love one another. And then he said something amazing. He said, by this will all men know, if you're my disciples, if you love one another. So what Jesus was saying is, look, you're going to be salt to the world. And we'll talk more about what salt is in a minute. But you're going to be salt to the world. You're going to be known. You're going to be branded as my disciples by your love. You'll be recognized as one of my followers by the way that you love other people. And so what I think Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look, you're going to stand out in our culture if you just live at peace with one another other just be at peace with one another have peace in your fellowship have peace in your church don't argue don't bicker don't fight don't lean back and ask the question what's in it for me right be salty by be by living and being at peace with one another forgive one another don't hold grudges You know, don't refuse uh, to to welcome somebody that's a part of your church and be in a relationship with them. See, what he's saying is, look, this is going to be your secret sauce. This is what the world's going to look at and see. This is going to be the evidence that they're going to see that you belong to me, that you are mine, right? And so we know that there are two ways that a church can lose its saltiness, It can lose its saltiness through comfort and complacency, and it can lose its saltiness by refusing to be at peace with other people in the body of Christ. Now, so let's talk about this salt thing. So when Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth, he's not talking about table salt. He's not Talking about the salt that you pull off a restaurant table and put on your food, or that you might put on your food here at home. The salt that is so common and easy to come by, right? When Jesus used the word salt, you have to think of mind salt. Mind salt. Salt that would come out of a mind that would look like this. Now, what many people don't know about salt is that it was the first industry of mankind. It was the absolute first industry that ever grew up, and it was, it was in its infancy in the time of Jesus. People were just beginning to understand how valuable, how vital salt was and, and is. And so when he says, you're the salt of the earth, he's making a profound observation. So for most of human history, salt has been very highly prized. We take it for granted, but that has not been the case for most of history. The ancient Egyptians stumbled upon salt's ability to decrease bacterial growth when you applied it to food, right? So the invention of curing through salt uh, allowed for the year-round preservation of food in a world without refrigerators. Now think about that. If you figure out a way to preserve food in a world where there's no such thing as a freezer or a refrigerator, that is a game changer. I mean, that is a deal breaker. That makes all the difference. And salt was responsible for that. The Romans, who were in power in the time of Jesus, right? They viewed salt, this stuff right here, that they mined. They viewed it as vital to the expansion of their empire, to transport it. They they built the Via Solari or the Salt Road. When their soldiers went to war, these soldiers, you know, because they had on the heavy armor and the breastplate and all that, and they were swinging heavy equipment. So these soldiers on the battlefield would sweat profusely. And the resulting salt deprivation would result in things like uh, seizures and spasms and even brain damage. So as Rome was expanding their empire, they actually developed the practice of paying their soldiers salt along with their paychecks so that as as they sweated, they could get that restored, you know, salt restored and avoid, you know, unpleasant things like seizures and cramps and brain damage. so um, and, and so that's how we got the word salary. Salary. The word salary finds its derivation in the Latin word for salt. And this is why if you're talking to somebody who's older than maybe 45 or 50, when I was growing up, I used to hear this phrase a lot. They would say, hey, that guy, he is worth his... He's really worth his salt. In other words, he's worth what you're paying him. He's he's doing the things that you're asking him to do, right? So when Jesus said that you and I are the salt of the earth, he was referring to mined salt, not processed salt. And it's very very important to understand the difference. Now, when you look at a picture of a salt mine, and I want to show you some of these, Now I want you to look at this because what's amazing is when you look at this, you see all kinds of different colors. We're used to thinking of salt as being white. That's that's only processed salt. Mine salt is all kinds of different colors. And in fact, I'm told that chefs actually prefer darker salts because it adds more flavor to the food it's more flavorful the other thing you need to know about mine salt is every salt mine is different because they have different trace elements so one salt mine may have trace elements of magnesium another salt mine might have trace elements of something else and it's those trace elements that give the salt of slightly different flavor. So what I'm telling you is that every salt mine is unique. There's no one salt mine that looks or tastes like another. And this is so so fascinating because this has such uh, clear implications. Furthermore, in the Old Testament, this is so important to understand, salt is often viewed As being as representing God's healing and God's restoration. And you see, I'll just there's several stories where you could see this, but I'll just show you one. You see this very clearly in 2 Kings chapter 2 with the prophet Elisha. Now, Elisha uh, has gone to Jericho. Any of you remember the Sunday school story, right? Uh, the Israelites march around Jericho uh, and the, the, the walls fall, right? Because uh, they sound their trumpets and the walls of Jericho fall. And then the city is destroyed. Now fast forward uh, into the future. The city has been rebuilt, but it's continued to struggle and here's why. The population there are struggling because there's no water supply. The water supply there has been tainted. And, because, and as you know, you can't build and grow a productive city if you don't have a good water supply. So Elisha comes to the city of Jericho. He sees that the residents of the city are suffering. And so he decides, it's one of his first miracles, what he does is he uh, supernaturally heals the water supply, the tainted water supply of the city. It says this, then he went to the spring of water and he, what did he do? He threw what in it? He threw salt in it. Why did he throw salt in it? Because salt was representative of the healing and the restoration of God. That's why he did it. And then he goes on, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So it's clean, it's pure, it's clear. And so now this city can become the productive city that it was meant to become. And here's what I want you to see. Do you know where Elisha got the salt that he threw in the spring? He got it from the people of Jericho. God used what they gave to Elisha to bring healing to their city. Sometimes we say here, right, God wants to use the best of your time, your talents, and your treasures. So what do we have to offer our city? Well, it starts with whatever we bring to God. It starts with whatever we offer. But I'll tell you this, whatever it is that we bring together, that is meant to be used for the healing and the restoration of our community, this city, and this day. I mean... Uh, This is why. So here's what all this means. Let's just unpack this and look at some of the implications of this. This means that when Jesus says you and I are the salt of the earth, first of all, we are valuable. You are valuable salt was worth building roads for salt was worth creating an industry for salt was a deal it was a deal maker in the day right it allowed for food to be cured and preserved in a world without refrigeration so it was life-giving it was life-affirming and so it means you are valuable and secondly what did we say we said no salt mine is the same. Not only are you valuable, but you and I, if we really are the salt of the earth, as Jesus says, we're utterly unique, right? Because no salt mine is the same. There are different, as we said, trace elements in each mine, right? So what that means is that uh, God wants to take our value, our uniqueness in this city and use it for His glory. You have unique gifts and unique talents and unique abilities unlike anyone else's that God wants to take and use to tell His story. His story. I'll tell you what else it means. It means that you and I are meant to preserve and transform the culture of our community. We're meant to preserve and transform the culture of our community in the same way that salt preserves food and keeps it fresh. We are to prevent the decay of, of the culture in our city. In other words, as uh, families experience more and more trauma and more and more brokenness and more and more dysfunction, we are meant to step into that and halt that decay and concretely, tangibly, really make our city a better place to live. This is so cool. I'll tell you something else it means. It means that you are meant to represent God's healing and restoration. Not to the city of Jericho. Elisha had his day. His day was focused on on Jericho. At least that was one of the cities, right? But the city that you and I have been placed in, the city that we have been called to, is Shelbyville, Indiana. And like Elisha, we too have been called to be instruments of healing and transformation in our city. But if we cave to comfort and complacency, well, friends, we, in that moment, we are playing the devil's instrument I'll tell you what else it means and I love this Uh, if you're the salt of the earth what it means is that God can use the dark parts of your story to glorify him The hard parts, the dark parts. Remember when we looked at at the salt mines, we saw all that color and there's dark salt and there's medium salt and there's lighter salt. All salt is not white because that's processed salt, right? But mine salt is just filled with dark pieces and parts and that's what gives it its flavor. Here's what I'm telling you. There is nothing that you've done that renders you useless to God. God will take the dark, hard pieces, the dark parts of your story and use them to tell a grander story with your one and only life. And then finally, if you and I are the salt of the earth, this means that we are meant to exist beyond ourselves. Salt doesn't exist for itself. It doesn't exist to sit in the ground right? It's meant to be extracted and used to benefit people. And and you and I, friends, we're not called to bury our, our, our time or our talents or our treasures in the ground. We're not called to that. We're called to make all of those things available, the best of those things in our hearts and lives, made available to Christ so that he can tell a better story with our lone, solitary lives. And this observation is what moved the Apostle Paul to write some astounding words. These will be the last words that we read together today, but I want you to listen to what Paul said. He said, you see, we don't go around preaching ourselves. In other words, what he's saying is, look, this is not about us. If this is about us, you know, I mean, look, if I just stood up every Sunday and I told you stories about me, you would get tired of hearing those stories about week two because my story's pretty small and uninteresting, like a lot of yours, right? But when, when when I begin to talk about God's story and how his story intersected with my lone solitary story, well, that's a new deal. That's a different deal. You, we'll never get to the end of God's story. We can't dig deep enough to get to the end of his story. His story's too big and too vast and too long and too eternal for us to get our arms around, right? That's a story worth talking about. That's a story worth telling. So what Paul says here is, look, this isn't about us. This isn't, we can't be comfortable. We can't be complacent because we're not preaching ourselves. We're not telling our own story. And then finally, he goes on and he says this. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we ourselves are your servants for His sake what if that was our posture to this community the community of Shelbyville Indiana what if it wasn't about us but it was about Christ as Lord and us putting a towel over our arms to serve people and listen in only the way that Jesus has already served us what did Jesus say love one another as I have loved you right We're not not setting the stage here. Jesus set the stage for the way we're called to love one another. How is that? We're called to love one another by giving ourselves away to one another. So when a church begins to literally love its community in a sense that it's giving itself away for the benefit of that community, oh, God is going to do something so big and so amazing. Do you see this? I mean, what if this was our posture? What if 2 Corinthians 4 or 5 was our posture with the city of Shelbyville? Years ago, I went to Guatemala on a missions trip. And we, we were there because there was a civil war that had been going on in Guatemala. And a lot of men had been fighting, you know, Guatemalan against Guatemalan. And a lot of men had been killed. And so we went down to build homes for widows who'd lost their husbands because they didn't have life insurance, they didn't have social security, there was no means for these women to to be supported. So we went down to build homes and they weren't really homes mind you, they were more like sheds. I mean there were no walls, there were four walls and a roof but there was no heating, there was no plumbing, there was no water, there was no uh, heat, you know it was just four walls and a roof and a dirt floor. That's all it was. And so the day came when we're going to present these two widows with these two homes. And, uh, you know, the widows are about this high, and they're a little bent over. This widow had young kids huddled around her feet, and the, the, the guy that's going to present this house to her stands up. And this is the verse, 2 Corinthians 4 or 5. Let's put it back up. This is the verse that he read to her. He said, hey, you know what? We just want you to know this isn't about us. This is about Jesus. And so we served you to be his hands and his feet. And I'll never, ever, ever, ever forget what this woman said. She put her head down and she said, who am I that Jesus should care for me? I mean, who am I that the God of the universe, the God of up there, the God of out there, that he would love me. And what was so striking to me about this statement is because at that time, I was working with college students here in America. And every time I I would present Christ to a college student in America, their attitude couldn't have been more different. Instead of saying, uh, who is Jesus that I should that he that he should care about me? They would say this to me essentially. They would say, well, who is Jesus that I should care about him? And when you see the difference in the worldview, it's striking. And so when this woman bowed her head, I mean, I just lost it. I mean, I just spent the last, you know, two and a half weeks of my life building this woman's home, and I'd have given her everything I owned in that moment because I was so overwhelmed with the love of God for her at her humility before the person of Jesus. And so let me just ask you this morning, what's your posture toward Jesus? What's the question that you ask when the mention of Jesus comes to mind, right? How do you respond? to that kind of a question. Now, here's why I ask this. You know, Craig mentioned at the beginning of our service, God's doing amazing things here just in the last couple of weeks. In the last couple of weeks, if you total it all up, everybody who's come to faith in the jail, the people that have come to faith in Starting Point, the people that have come to faith through the Wild Game Feast uh, last weekend, we've had well over 170 people turn in cards indicating first-time decisions for Jesus Christ now listen okay listen don't applaud here's why you already applauded and that's awesome but I'm gonna ask you to do more than applaud so 10 years ago I would have been happy to tell people that and pray for those folks but you got to remember so what that means is there are 170 little infant baby Christians lying all over our city. Now remember, infants, they can't feed themselves, they can't help themselves, they can't do anything, right? That's why a lot of them, and they would never think of coming to church. I mean, why would they? They don't know how vital and important it is to have a church family, right? So what we're doing, and this is amazing, this is as amazing as what God has done. So of those 170 or so decisions, we've been able to co- so what we're doing is we're sending a person because disciples make disciples right we're sending a, we're matching a person one-to-one with every one of these new believers and so far we've made about a hundred and fifty five matches so hundred and fifty five of you have raised your hand and said, you know what? I will walk alongside one of these new believers. And what's so cool about this is um, we're we're giving you the resource to do it. You remember when you were here last weekend and Dr. Moyer held up the book and he said, we want to give everybody a copy of this book, 31 Days to Living as a New Believer. So if you've said yes to christ we're going to get that book in your hand well what we're doing instead of mailing them the book we're going to hand deliver this book to them and then we're going to offer to go through it with them because what they really need at this stage is a relationship they just need somebody to come alongside them and say hey look i'm praying for you i'm here for you i want to be a friend and i will go through this resource with you and here's what's so amazing not only do we want to give you and this new convert, these new Christians, these baby Christians, a copy of this, we've written you a script. We've come up with a process. for. I mean, we've made this foolproof, right? We've made this as easy as we can. We've come up with a process to help some of you come alongside these new believers. Now, here's the good news and the bad news. So ladies, there are some of you ladies here and you're like, oh, I feel so convicted, I have to do this. The bad news is that you can't, ladies, because every single lady that we had become a Christian has already been matched with someone. So we, we have about 15 men left that need someone to come alongside them get this resource in their hand, be their friend, and walk with them. Spend an hour a week for six to eight weeks. An hour a week for six to eight weeks to walk through this resource. We'll answer your questions. We'll, we'll make you feel equipped. Now, there are some of you here, and you're thinking this. You're thinking what the enemy's wanting you to think is, hey, you know what? I'm not qualified. Let somebody else do it. What if I mess this up? listen. If you're their friend and you're praying for them and you get this resource in their hand and you just encourage them to walk through it, there's no way you're going to screw that up. There's just no way that's going to happen. God is going to use you in ways that are going to blow your mind. You're going to know His joy. You're going to feel His joy. He's going to pat some of you men on the back and say, boy, Daddy's proud of you. You've got this and I've got you. And you're going to know for the first time what it feels like to invest spiritually in another human being. And it's going to blow your mind. So here's what we're going to do right after this service. And I'm going to invite our team up. We're going to probably finish four or five minutes late. I'm going to go ahead and ask our praise team to come up. We're going to close with a song and then here's what we're going to do. I want to challenge 15 of you men To meet us, you see where those posters are on the wall? We're going to have a group of people over there. And if God is saying to you, I want you to do this, we want you to sign up over there, walk over there right after our service. Now listen, because here's the miracle of this 170 new believers. And what we are doing as a church, if, if 15 more guys show up over there, we're saying, we are individually walking alongside every single one of those people guys that is a miracle that's amazing and you can be part of that it's your day right it's our day so i'm going to pray we're going to sing and then you can go right where jim is over there in that corner and jim's going to have other people too so it doesn't get too bottled neck, and we will match you to another man that you can invest in over the next six to eight weeks. Let me pray for you and for us. Heavenly Father, Papa, I did my best. God, would you work and would you move? Would you make us a church? Would you make us a disciple-making church that would bring real, concrete, tangible hope and help and healing? to our community. Help us be like the prophet Elisha and literally transform the culture and the future of this town that so many of us call home. So God, don't let us exist for ourselves. Don't let us preach ourselves or be content to tell our own little stories. But God, help us to tell your story with such a flair And we ask it and pray it in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said.